Lord, we thank you that from you and through you and to you are all things, which includes what we're doing this morning. To you be the glory, I pray. I ask that you would open up ears to hear, hearts to receive the implanted word of God, which is able to save our souls. And I ask God that you would grip us this morning with the fact that you are God and there is no other. And you graciously invite us to come and partake with you through your Son. Thank you for that, Lord. Amen. Uh, This week, I was uh, on the internet and I was looking at one of the blog sites that I frequently go to. And it's the blog site of Doug Grotius, who is a Christian philosopher, professor, and author. And uh, he wrote a book. Well, he's written quite a few books. But um, the book that, uh, the, the last book he wrote, it's called uh, Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Approach. And I think it's one of the best apologetics books out there by anyone. Uh, it's understandable. It's, it's clear. It's very, very uh, well written. Um, anyway, in the blog site, he wrote something called Why I Think American Civilization is Crumbling. Here's what he says. The American way of life and civil government are founded on principles that are being renounced, both overtly and subtly. We were exceptional and thus much was required of us. President Abraham Lincoln called us the almost chosen nation. America was settled by Christians who took their worldview seriously. This does not excuse errors, such as how Native Americans were often treated or the terrible institution of slavery. But when the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were written, they did not appear out of a vacuum. God gave us our fundamental rights. Religion must be neither established nor opposed by the civil government. We affirmed a government of laws, not of men. Hence, the three branches of government were separated and held each other in check. The American moral compass once pointed to the Judeo-Christian work ethic, the responsibilities of citizenship, and the prizing of liberty over equality, since that latter cannot be achieved east of Eden. The power of private charity and non-governmental organizations were valued higher than any impersonal subsidies or structures. Religion was either assumed or encouraged through the work of Christian churches. National leaders quoted the Bible and called the nation to prayer, whether sincerely or not. But who could doubt the sincerity of Abraham's statements on God's bearing on the nation? America saved the world from global tyranny at least twice in the 20th century, from the fascist Axis powers and from the world domination of the USSR. By the way, fascism is left-wing, not conservative. Remember, Hitler's ideology was national socialism. And now, it is nearly all gone. The President of the United States denies American exceptionalism and confesses that he is a, quote-unquote, citizen of the world. He arrogates unconstitutional power to himself through executive orders and intimidation. Religious freedom for Christians is threatened by demands to recognize and accept same-sex marriage in businesses and schools. Churches will be next. While the Declaration states that God has given us inalienable rights, including life, about 55 million unborn humans have been slaughtered through abortion. Now it is federally supported by the Affordable Health Act, Care Act, which is also the most monstrous statist power move in the history of the Republic. Statism, the foulest political idol, abounds. Individual initiative is not saluted. Handouts are demanded. Multiculturalism claims that no culture is better than any other except that American culture is more guilty than any other because of our supposed imperialism, systemic racism, and the rest of the fictional litany. The signs of this decay are both large and small. Internationally, the commander-in-chief will only lead from behind. He will not recognize Islam as a tidal wave of terrorism globally. A man shouting, Allah is great! slaughters a dozen of his military companions, including a pregnant woman whose child also died. The Obama administration calls this workplace violence. 
The deceit is painful and deadly. While in prison, the Fort Hood murder continues to declare his worship of Allah and death to the infidels. American citizens want American flags taken down since they are, quote-unquote, offensive to some. Police recoil from stopping violent protests lest they offend racial minorities. Cities burn. Authority is broken down. Fear spreads. Ignorance of American history and the Bible is epidemic. Ignoramuses live by media images, slogans, and untutored emotions. They demand justice when they have no idea what the facts are. America is crumbling from the inside, as did Rome. Its resistance to tyranny at home and attacks from abroad, for example ISIS, cannot keep hell at bay. Much of the church is either asleep or in bed with the world. Most Christians do not possess a biblical worldview adequate to expose error and establish the good, the true, and the beautiful. Few teachers and preachers explain the biblical theology of suffering and sacrifice. Reverend Timothy Keller is a blessed exception. I was young and now I am old. I've seen just about everything. I've spent long but meaningful hours at my study desk. I've dared to step into many pulpits. For 35 years I have presided in the classrooms, secular and religious. I have read and studied and wrestled with my Bible. I have been on my knees. That I write is not flippant, not reactionary, and not impetuous. My aim is truth. The kingdom of God is not limited to the land of my birth. God's ways will not be thwarted since the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But nations come and go. God sets them up and knocks them down. I fear the worst for these United States. My hope is in the kingdom and power of the God of the Bible. But I will go down fighting for the best of the American system. And perhaps you like I share many of the sentiments he wrote there but one thing is clear you put on the news you think about what's going on in our culture today and you cannot but feel that things are just coming apart at the seams that it's only a matter of time until all crumbles now some people think that's a bit extreme I personally don't but when it comes to God's kingdom and him moving in and through nations. He historically has raised up nations for His purposes, and when God is done with those nations for His purposes, they are no more. And in the book of Daniel, which we're going to be studying, um, it's no different. And the question I have for us today, which is the title of this sermon, can we trust God in the worst of times? Probably the number one problem that keeps people from becoming Christians or staying Christians, supposedly, is what's called the problem of evil. In other words, if God is all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, whatever worldview you come from, you're going to have to answer that question. If you're an atheist, your response ultimately is going to be, well, you're just going to need to stick it out, and at the end of the, you know, at the, end of the day, when you die, it's over. If you're a monist or a pantheist, you're essentially going to say it's an illusion. But if you're a theist, and specifically a Christian theist, you're going to say that God has embraced suffering and evil and has conquered it in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and He is coming back to make what's wrong right. It's been my experience that when things get hard in our lives and in people's lives, some people fly the coop. You really see where you're at when the pressure's on. You really see what you believe when the tide is against you. Well, in the book of Daniel, we're going to see a lot of these things. First of all, the book of Daniel is in our Bible. It's placed where the major prophets are uh, after Ezekiel, which follows the pattern of the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament now in the Hebrew Bible, it's placed in the third division of the canon, and that is the received books. It's put in the area which, which is called the writings. Now why is that? Well, we're not sure, but more likely than not, because Daniel is not called a prophet, 
but a seer and one who is wise. That is where those books are placed in the Hebrew canon. Now, this book is divided essentially in two sections. The first six chapters, what you have is essentially biography with some predictive prophecy. And then chapters 7 through 12, what you have is mostly predictive prophecy with some personal biography. Why was this book written? You ask yourself, whenever you're reading any, any Bible book, you want to ask yourself, what's going on? What was, why is this written? What's the purpose of it? What is the occasion? Well, it's not explicitly clear, but we know that God was cleaning house because Israel had forsaken the law and therefore the Lord of the law. Second Chronicles 36, 14-17 says this, Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which He had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people, until there was no remedy. Therefore He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into His hand. Now the genuineness of this book has often been assailed. Especially in the Enlightenment period, in the 17th century, where the quote-unquote age of reason reigned, where everything that had anything to do with anything supernatural or any kind of predictive uh, power in any kind of literature was looked on as not true. It, I want you to understand, it was presupposed of the Bible. It was not demonstrated nor argued for uh, intelligently nor argued for uh, cogently. But the many things in the Bible and specifically of Daniel's book that come under assailment uh, are the issue of predictive prophecy. How in the world could uh, you know this guy write something before it happens? Because we know no God exists, right? So this had to be after the fact. Does it have to be after the fact? If the, let's just presuppose the Christian claim that God is there, He's creator of everything, and He sustains it all. Is it too difficult for Him to speak to creatures like us? Is it too difficult for Him to see the future? I mean... Uh, Really? At least give us the common courtesy, if you disagree, to at least accept our presuppositions and deal with those. They are at least consistent with what we hold to be true, that there is one all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing God. And again, the miraculous is poo-hooed. Um, there's there's uh, uh, issues of the, the historicity of this book. But I don't want to bore you with that. What I want you to understand is this, is that when God speaks, He's pretty clear. And one thing that's pretty clear in this book is His purpose. The purpose for why this book is written is to show, first and foremost, that God is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of this world that He is in control, that we ultimately are not. And essentially what's going to happen in your life and my life is we're continually going to be dealing with the issue of whose word are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the creatures or the creators? The same thing that happened to Adam and Eve where they had to choose who they were going to trust, 
the serpent who is a creature, or the creator who is the source of all life. We know that because they did not trust the creator's word, then death entered. And in fact, throughout the scriptures, whenever God's word is not obeyed, it always essentially brings death, not life. Misery, ultimately, not happiness. Confusion, not clarity. God is absolutely sovereign. One author has said this, The reason for the writing is to show how by His providential guidance, His miraculous interventions, His foreknowledge and almighty power, the God of heaven controls and directs the forces of nature and the history of nations, the lives of Hebrew captives and of the mightiest of the kings of the earth for the accomplishment of His divine and beneficent plans for His servants and people. And immediately the the servants, specifically the servant in this book, is Daniel and his three companions. Daniel is a stalwart in all of Scripture. He is a statesman prophet. Uh, He has many qualities. His spiritual maturity uh, is obviously seen when he's receiving visions from God, the way he interprets the dreams of the kings. He is a God-centered man through and through. Even in an alien nation, he refuses to budge from his devotion to God. That's spiritual maturity. His righteousness is evident when he refuses to to partake of the food in the king's court, which was most likely sacrificed to pagan deities. When he is told that he should not be praying, what does he do in chapter 6? He makes sure that all of Babylon knows he's praying. He's a righteous man. He's a courageous man. And if there's one quality today that we must have as believers, we must be courageous. We cannot bow down to the intimidations that come at us through either public education, the news media, the caricatures of states of affairs, what's really going on, etc., etc., etc. In our own relationships with other people, our neighbors, we need courage. We need spiritual courage. This man had it. So did his friends. And we see this courage in many different ways. He, doesn't, he refuses to defile himself. He approaches the, um, the king's executioner, talking to him about what's going on. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to go mad? He tells... He tells King Belshazzar that he's going to die with the writing on the wall. These are the kind of things that get you killed. These are not the kind of things that bring favor into your life. And now remember this, although we we don't know what it's like to live under a monarch here in the United States. Closest thing we have is, you know, the, the president. But we don't realize that when a king spoke... His word was final. You did not say, hold on a second, I don't agree with you. That is, you know, even if you looked at the king without permission, that was cause for death. The king was, in a sense, absolutely sovereign. His word ruled everything. And so in order to appreciate what Daniel and his friends go through in this book, we've got to go to the context. We've got to go to what's really going on here in the text and not bring in our 21st century presuppositions into the text. And his capabilities, my gosh, his capabilities, that he and his companions were first among equals. They were seen as... The, the, the cream of the crop, not just of Israel, but even in all of Babylon. So these are tremendous men and they're youths. Do you hear me? Hey, you who are young, you who are under 25, these are youths. We don't know how young they were. 
They were probably teenagers. But they were youths. And they find themselves in this situation that they have no control over. So my question is this. Can we trust God in the worst of times? And I promise you, the angst, the anxieties that you are experiencing in your own life, try to compare them to what's going on in these youths' lives. Because what they did, they could not do apart from a resolve to live for the glory of God. And neither can you nor I. If we don't have a resolve that I'm going to live for the glory of God come hell or high water, it doesn't matter what anybody says ultimately because they're the creature. If the Creator says, I am the one true God and this is how I want you to live, I want you to submit to my Son who is the final word, to not do that is, at the end of the day, utter madness. Because the consequences is eternal condemnation. So how bad is it? Well, it's really bad here. Let's read. Let's read the whole chapter. It's only 21 verses. won't take long. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus, 
the king. How bad is it? It's really bad. Here, God, first and foremost, I want to point this out, has sovereignly displaced His people. Verse 2 says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, etc. To the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So here we have a situation where a pagan ruler takes the city of David. This happens in true space-time history. In Jerusalem around 605 B.C. where Babylon besieges the city and the beginning of Israel's 70-year exile obtains. This is the end of Israel as an independent nation. Now this is where Daniel will live the rest of his days. This is the place where Daniel will serve God and his purposes in the court of the kings of Babylon. And this is where Daniel and other true believers will experience the nature of corporate sin. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this, is not all of Israel were idolaters, most of them were. So guess what? Those who were not were affected by those who were. Isn't that the the, the nature of corporate sin anyway? We say, well, you know, I, 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 I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden. It's not fair that I should pay for the sins of Adam. Well, there's something is to be said about the, the, the corporate nature of sin. It affects more than just the person that is committing the sin. It affects those who come after. Now, why is this situation happening? The reason is because of Israel's idolatry. Verse 2 says that the Lord gave it into the hands of Israel's enemies. God is faithful to keep His promises, folks. He is faithful to bless you if you follow. He is is faithful to curse you if you don't. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, they were all warning Israel, repent. Repent from your idolatry or you're going to go into captivity. And so God sent the prophets. He sent word. But what happened? What did they do? Did they listen? Good. They didn't listen. Much like today in churches everywhere in our country. People go, but they're not listening. Much like, much like in our culture, where people can't even stomach the thought of, wow, there's only one way to God. How dare you? You arrogant human beings. Who do you think you are? They have no place for the Word of God. But they have a place for worshiping Mother Nature. They have a place for worshiping God as they see fit in their own eyes. It's nothing's new. It's all it's the same it's idolatry. They have no problem with the gods of the nations. Yeah, if, if you want to worship the sun or if you want to worship the, the, the moon or if you want to worship the creatures, that's fine. In our culture, that's fine. Why? Because that's your truth. And that's where we're at. But what that, that kind of stuff brings, God's judgment, God's wrath. Second, uh, Second Chronicles 36.16 says this, speaking of Israel and their idolatry, they continually mocked the messengers of God. D- despised His words and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people until, until there was no remedy. Principle here. Before judgment comes, God always brings warning out of His compassion and love. He doesn't owe it to us, but He gives it to us. From the beginning of the book, Daniel assures the reader and makes implicitly clear that this exile that's happening is ultimately not Nebuchadnezzar's doing. It is God's doing. It is God's doing. 
And so when we're talking about God and we're specifically talking about what does it mean that God is sovereign, the big picture is this. He's the Creator. He exercises power. He is self-existent. And therefore, He is the ground of all truth and all reality. He not only created, but He also sustains everything that's created. And therefore, guess what? It all belongs to Him. It's His. And so as designer and architect, He knows how best for human beings to live. When we live according to His design, we flourish. When we don't, it's not good. Continue. Verses 3 through 7, what you see here is they are being trained. It's the cream of the crop that has been conquered that the king wants to put into his service. First of all, verse 3 says this, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the courts, in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. This is the Royal Academy. These youths, along with all of Israel, have been sovereignly displaced by God. Now, there is a screening requirement going on here. Not just anybody can serve in the king's court. What class of person can serve in the king's court? Sons of Israel, those that are of royal lineage, and those that come from the nobility, the noble class. We're not sure if Daniel and his friends came from the nobility or royal lineage, but more likely than not, they did. And what we do know is that many of these youths already would have received an education in political affairs. Right? They're getting ready to rule in Israel. Not only that, they had to be a specific kind of person. They had to look good. They couldn't have any physical defects. They had to be sharp. They had to be well-versed in the issues of wisdom, understanding, and discerning knowledge, which speaks of those that are well-versed in the practical in the practical and in the living out of what the book of Proverbs teaches. The book of Proverbs is a book that God has given to us, the covenant people, that we might know how to navigate wisely as covenant people in this present evil age in our affairs in business and how to deal with relationships. So, you got the royal screening, and then you got the royal requirements. Now you got royal training curriculum. They've got a three-year academy going here. It's for three years they are being taught. What are they being taught? They're reading the Chaldean great books. They're being taught the Chaldean language. Heck, they're even getting versed in the cuisine of the Chaldeans. I know some of you here love certain kind of food and others uh, hate certain kind of foods. Imagine not being able to have your spices. Think about it. Not have your spices. Not have your favorite foods. And now you've got to eat foreign food. For some of you, I know you can't stand fish. All right? Others, you know, all you can eat is Mexican. That's fine. I have no problem with both. But foods, think about this. Our understanding of the world, our language, and our food are very connected to our identity as human beings. Right? They are. They are. Because every culture has its language, its history, its foods. Well, these four youths are being introduced to something that's completely and totally foreign. And there's a specific reason for it. So, not only are they getting trained for three years, but their names are changed. Their names 
are changed. And that is, there's a specific reason for why that is. For the Jew, the name describes who that person is. Now, we in America have a hard time appreciating that. But when we are talking about exalting the name of God, when the Bible talks about that, the Bible is talking about placarding who He is, who He has revealed Himself to be, how He deals with the sons of men. So the assignment of new names was a common court practice in the ancient world and it signaled that there was a new owner of these youths. For example, Daniel, whose name in Hebrew means God is my judge, was changed to Belteshazzar, which either means Nebo or Nabu, protect his life. Uh, in Babylon, Nabu was the supreme God. Hananiah, his name means Yahweh has been gracious, was changed to Shadrach, which means I am very fearful of God. Mishael, which means who is what God is was changed to Meshach, I am of little account. And Azariah means Yahweh has helped, was changed to Abednego, servant of the Shining One, referring probably to Nabu. So what's going on here? We've got what's called a royal flush. Think about it. They have been completely displaced. They're in a new land. They have a new ruler. They have new language. There's a new culture. There's new food. And now you've got a new name. You know what the conclusion is? Everything that was precious to you, everything that you previously known, has been stripped. That's what's going on here. It's bad. This is really, really bad. And like I said before, I'm going to say again, pain is real. These kind of events cause people to commit suicide. Understand? When people lose fortunes, one of the ways they end the pain is they kill themselves. Because they're trusting. They're trusting in what they thought was going to be their safety net and it's gone and they can't cope and so they end their lives. But what happened? What does God do? Verses 8-16, through 16, what we see here is that even though God sovereignly displaced His people, still God graciously is there and responds to Daniel's holy resolve. Verse 8, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So here what you have is a holy resolve among overwhelming odds, in the midst of horrible situations. He's utterly displaced. But you know what Daniel did not forget? He didn't forget his name. His real name. He didn't forget that God is. I am. He didn't forget that God is there. He didn't forget who God was. And he didn't forget who he was. One of the challenges of somebody coming from a different country, for example, to the United States, is to maintain the culture, the language, etc. that comes from the old country. It's very difficult to maintain because everything is coming up against you here. When we came from Argentina, we pretty much assimilated I mean, I could still speak Spanish, but it was not what we spoke at home, really. Now, in my wife's uh, home, they're, they're different. They maintained their Cuban heritage. They spoke in Spanish at home. But it is a tension that immigrants experience. It is a tension that second-generation Hispanic youths experience here in the United States. There's tension that comes along with that. You're in an English-speaking country, but your folks you know, are thinking you know, and speaking to you and, you know, and feeding you only what came from your country. There's, there, there's a desire to assimilate in the culture, 
So there's that tension. Well, imagine, imagine the tension that Daniel and his friends had. But they didn't, they didn't cave. You know why Daniel didn't cave? He was a real believer. The Spirit of the Lord was in him. You can't do that apart from the power of God and the life of God working in and through your life. You can't live a life that's pleasing to Him apart from His Word, apart from His power. You can't do it. What's the evidence? He wouldn't defile himself. With pagan food offered to pagan gods, he refused to assimilate. He refused to assimilate. He's in the world, but he's not of the world. Remember Romans, 1, uh, uh, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says, In light of God's mercies, present your body a holy and living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When we set aside the desire and the, the, the tidal wave of wanting to assimilate and not stand out, what we do is we are not being light in the world. Well, Daniel is being light. Daniel was being light. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anybody light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a lampstand so that it gives light to everyone in the house. And then he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Daniel's doing that here. He is doing it by not assimilating. But I, uh, something that to me that is very precious, he's not only uh, has a holy resolve, but his resolve is tactful and it's courageous. He's not a religious bigot. He doesn't come across like he's super clean and everybody else is filthy. In fact, he understands authority is given by God. And as such, he understood how to approach those that are in authority. And when he approaches the commander of the officials, he risks getting killed. He risks getting killed. Verse 9 says, Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who's appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Their holy resolve was rewarded by God. God granted favor. Even though God sovereignly displaced Israel, His favor was not taken away from them. It does not negate God's favor. Again, I said earlier, and I'll say it again, one of the reasons people fall away from the faith or say, I can, will never become a Christian is because the quote-unquote problem of evil. And there is an infantile way of reasoning that says, if I'm in pain, God must not love me. And that's a lie. A pain's horrible. And some pain's worse than others. But don't believe that lie. Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not even death. What, 
the Old and New Testament show us of God's servants? Of those who want to live a life of godliness? What does it show us? That everybody will like you? No! In fact, it shows us that during this present evil age, the servants of God, the people of God, will suffer. Will be persecuted. Some worse than others. And that's why it's so important to have a a theology of suffering that is consistent with the Scriptures. So that when the time comes and you are embattled, you will not fall down and reject your Creator. God grants Daniel favor and compassion. That is, the main guy. Ashpenaz is given by God a favorable, loving, loyal disposition toward Daniel. God moved on this officer. And Daniel felt he could confide in him. There was a relationship going on here. God was moving. God's favor always, always brings life. It always brings life. And this favor of God enabled these youths to walk in holiness even though they were in a pagan court. Those of us who call ourselves Christians, we find ourselves in the workplace and we say, boy, it's really hard. It's really hard to to let my light shine because you're pulled by all kinds of loyalties that that are completely against the God of creation, completely uh, counter your loyalties to Christ. Don't for a moment think that you can't stand and shine. Why? Because sin is no longer your master if you're a Christian. You're not under the the law. You're not under the power of the law. You're under the, the power of grace, which does what? It brings new life, new desires. It enables you to do what you could not do apart from grace, which is live for the glory of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So God not only grants favor... But he also grants wisdom. He gives them wisdom and understanding more than any other youths there. Verse 17 says this, As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. God rewards these youths with what? With special intellectual abilities. Any of you want to go into politics? You want a Christian? You think you can't go into politics? The book of Daniel is a fantastic model for those of you who are godly, who want to actually go and make a difference in the places of where laws are made, or the battles for the souls of this nation obtain. Proverbs says that when the wicked rule, the people groan, but when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. There's something to be said about the righteous ruling. And one of the ways we rule is in places of civic office 
God may be calling some of you to such a position. So what do they have? They're smart. They're smart. When he says they give them wisdom, this word in Hebrew, it's a term that combines the idea of knowledge arrived at through accurate discernment and the ability to apply that knowledge effectively to the task to which must be done or to the decision that must be made. Let me say that again. Wisdom in Hebrew has to do with knowledge. But it's not just knowledge. It's knowledge that you arrive at through accurate discernment and the ability to apply that knowledge effectively to the task to which must be done or to the decision that must be made. And the primary focus is concerned with living responsibly before God and coping successfully with every problem or task confronting Him as a servant of God. That's a lot of details, isn't it? That takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of contemplation. We have a tendency to not want to sit and contemplate. We have a tendency to not want to stop and consider how am I living? What am I doing? How ought I proceed? And when God gives wisdom, it doesn't come accidentally. The book of Proverbs says that you want wisdom. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But you know how you get wisdom? You dig like treasure. It's like treasure. You work, you apply yourself, sweat. It's not, okay, God, just give me wisdom. It's not the way it works. You have to apply yourself. Just, just, you know, just like a guitarist cannot become a world-class guitarist by just picking up the guitar one day and saying, okay, I'm ready. No, there's been a lot of bleeding fingers for years. Hours upon hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. Any skill requires time to acquire it. Well, wisdom, God granted. But He didn't only grant him wisdom. Granted him understanding. And this term in Hebrew has to do with the power of discernment. The ability to distinguish between appearance and reality. Listen, this is really important. It's the ability to distinguish between appearance and reality, between the false from the true, and between evil from good. We live in a culture. You do understand, in our culture, relativism rules the day. There, quote-unquote, is no absolute truth, and therefore you, the individual, are king to make up your own, quote-unquote, reality. Except, you can't live consistently with that worldview. Right? Not when a Mack truck is jamming down the street and you get in front of it. Not when you go to the bank and you want to draw out $2,000 and you only have $32.16. Right? Right? We live in a culture that doesn't know its right hand from its left. The fact that we are even debating what is marriage, the fact that we're even debating that shows you how far off we've gone. You're going to listen to some ultimate authority. You're either going to listen to the societal relativism which says that or you're going to listen to divine authority which has spoken clearly and said, no, I am God, there is no other. 
marriage is between a man and a woman. It's my design. Not to make you unhappy, but to make you happy, to flourish, so that you will flourish. This understanding implies a perceptiveness that is able to see through any deception. It's an indispensable, it's an indispensable characteristic if you're in office. Think about it. Can you imagine having to be at the White House, getting bombarded with problem after problem after problem after problem, not knowing, okay, how do we deal with this? I mean, parents experience that, right? Don't we as parents experience, okay, how do I deal with this child? Lord, I know I, uh, there's some clear parameters in your word of how I'm to raise them, but how do I deal with them in this situation? It's kind of a gray area. How do, how do I reach them best? That's not black and white. Because everybody's an individual. They're different. So, at the end of the day, what did God end up doing? God ended up exalting these four youths. Their qualities outshined everyone else. And my question is this, can you trust God? Can I trust God when things are going really badly? What are you going to do, children, when the day comes and one of your parents die? How are you going to respond to that? God forbid, what do you do as a parent if one of your children dies? How do you deal with that pain? How do you deal with it when their lives were taken away brutally by a murderer? What do you do with that? How are you going to deal with when at school people start not only making fun of you, uh, they start marginalizing you because of your Christian convictions. What are you going to do? What are you going to do if you can't find work? Or what are you going to do if your, fa if your health fails? What are you going to do? What are you going to do if your pension all of a sudden disappears? Because somebody was not doing a good job of what they said they would do, now they're not doing it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, I promise you this. If you are trusting the word of the creature, you're going to fall apart. You're going to make some really, really bad choices. You're going to be in a lot of pain and you're going to try to numb that pain through many different things. Pick your poison. But if you like these four youths are resolved to walk with God and refuse to assimilate when the assimilation requires that you now start saying, yes, same-sex marriage is fine. I'm good with it. God loves everybody. When the assimilation forces you to say and to acquiesce, yes, all religions teach the same thing, and Jesus is one among many, leading all to heaven. You're not going to make it. Not if the Word of God does not richly dwell in you. Not if you're taking seriously the implications of what the Word of God teaches regarding what it means to live in Christian community. Not if you don't deal radically with your own sin. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it from you. Your right hand causes you to stumble. Cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. 
Jesus is saying, you need to deal radically with sin. We need to deal radically with our sin. Why? Because it's so lethal. It's so deadly. And it lulls us to sleep if we're not careful. And we trust God in the worst of times. Well, Daniel would say, yeah, we can. Even though they're sovereignly displaced. Everything that's precious to them is just taken away. One preacher says this, All too frequently we take a different view of our trials and temptations. We view them as isolated nightmares. God, however, sees them from a different perspective. They are important and connected punctuation marks in the biography of grace He is writing in our lives. Pain. God is doing something, Christian, through the pain. Don't run. Run to Him. Don't run away from Him. Can you trust Him? Can you trust Him in the worst of times? Yeah. Daniel would say yes. Regardless of your captivity, he would say, remember the Lord your God. Regardless of your place in this culture, workplace, at school, wherever you recreate, regardless, know who God is and know who you are, Christian. And resolve to not assimilate. Resolve to not compromise. Even if everything is taken away from you. It's all temporary. It's all temporary. Adam and Eve were displaced from the garden. Why? Because of their idolatry, right? Their disobedience. They trusted the word of the creature rather than the creator. Israel also. Why? They went to worship other gods, the gods of the nations, where God said to them, Look, man, you shall have no other gods before me. By the way, I'm the God who rescued you from Egypt. The then known power, I've decimated them to show you that I'm God and there is no other. And yet, and yet, they still, after seeing all those miraculous signs, they still did not believe. They still did not believe. Now these qualities, these qualities in Daniel and his companions are, are very, very impressive. Um, concerning their holiness, their courage, their wisdom, their understanding. But you know what? And I know there's somebody who's much greater than these. He's the one who said, let there be light and light was. He's the one who would bruise the serpent's head. He's the one who was displaced from his heavenly home because of our idolatry. He was the one who was despised, bruised, and rejected by men as he said, it is finished on the cross. He's the one who conquered death by his resurrection from the tomb. He's the one who's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. He's the one who ever lives to make an accession on behalf of those who are his. He's the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the one who's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. He's the one who will come to war against his enemies in the last days and slay them with his word. He's the one who will set up the new heavens and the new earth. And you know who this is. This is Jesus. He is the King of glory whose song we will forever and forever sing. And what Jesus would say to you, Christian, He would say, you can trust me regardless of the circumstances because of who I am. In fact, ultimately, I'm the only one you can ultimately trust. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And my life, death, and resurrection attest to this grandest of all truths. And so, if you're not a believer, 
Well, then the Spirit of God would say to you, come, repent of your sins, bend the knee to Jesus and live for Him. For there are no others that can rescue. There is but only one. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the book of Daniel that shows us what I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians have a hard time with, Your sovereignty, the issue of pain, how that all works out. And yet You are always working within it to accomplish Your purposes. And so God, I ask that those of us that are Yours, that we, if You sovereignly displaced us, would not bow to the gods of the age, but would remember who You are and who we are in You. Don't let the world and the things of this world which are passing away be the treasure you go for, church. Don't do that. But may the treasure you go for be the king, be the king's kingdom, which is everlasting, unlike all of the kingdoms of this world which are passing away.